I'm going to read from uh, John chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 6 to 26. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons from this livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. And then I want to just jump forward. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I want to think on verse 13. And it's when Jesus says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. Water's the most extraordinary substance, isn't it? With it, we flavor it, we sweeten it, we color it, we mask it, we clean with it, we pour it away. But nothing replaces its purity. And nothing takes the place of the life that it gives us and sustains us every day. I remember as a a 15-year-old, I was learning German and my parents thought it was a good idea to to send me off during the holidays to a family who lived in Switzerland, yeah, that was great, in Zurich, to learn German, to speak better German. Ich kann ein wenig Deutsch sprechen, but that's about it that I can remember at the moment. So I stayed with this family for a couple of weeks, and, um, and that was great, kind of. And um, the kids were a lot older than me, and the eldest son, who had served in the Swiss Army for a time, on one time took me um, on what he said was a hike. And we drove high up in the mountains somewhere. We went on to one of the highest glaciers. We, did, we just kind of had nothing with us, and we just walked and we walked and we walked on this glacier. And it was stunning, it was beautiful. But after a while, I was getting thirsty and we had no water to drink. And, and he obviously knew the mountains and he took out his Swiss knife. Well, I don't remember what he did actually, but <laughs> I'm sure he had a Swiss knife with him. Um, but basically, he kind of pumped a hole in part of this glacier and he said, Phil, drink. And I just scooped up this water and drank the most extraordinary, refreshing, thirst quenching water I had ever drunk. Absolutely beautiful. You see, without water, we can only live a few days. 
But rarely do we value that biological instinct called thirst that cries out when we're thirsty for a drink, which I am. But you know it's the same with spiritual thirst. There is a spiritual instinct that God has created within each one of us, every single person who's ever lived. And that instinct is called thirst. But rarely do we value that God-given instinct of thirst and cry out for the water of life. And I want us to think about this today, the water of life. In this passage in John 4, and I don't know about you, but this is one of my favorite chapters in Scripture. I just, I look at this story, I read it, I read it, I read it again. There always seems to be something new that God teaches us through it. But what we see in this story is a lonely figure approaching a well at noon, the heat of the day. Out of sight, out of mind from people in the community, coming to draw enough water for her household and carry it back alone. And she would have done this day after day after day. But on this occasion, there is a man at the well. And in her accustomed familiarity of like solitude, this was her space, her time, her well, no one else was around her. She encounters this figure who is not only a man, and we know a bit later on in the story, she had experiences of men, and that certainly had taken its toll. But here is a Jewish man, one who was the enemy of a people, asking her for water. Give me a drink. And way out of her comfort zone, she finds herself engaging in conversation and answering, and Jesus answering her by saying, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. You know, we don't know exactly at what point the spiritual instinct in this lady cried out. The thirst of her heart, her soul, cried out. But certainly by verse 15, she's gasping for the water of life. She says, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst. Give me this water that I may not thirst. And what is this cry for the water of God? Well, actually, instinctively and innately, it's because of who we are and how he's made us. It's a cry for God's presence. It's that cry where deep calls to the deep, Psalm 42. It's the recognition and the revelation That without the presence of God becoming in us a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life, we sooner or later dehydrate. And we sooner or later discover that we cannot live without the presence of God. And what I love about this story and Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman is the way this woman is so open, so eager, so desperate to drink. Despite a life of brokenness, despite a life of pain, and the thick walls that she would have built around her to keep her heart from being hurt any more from the people that she lives with. This water of life seeps through the cracks of these walls that very quickly, supernaturally crumble and fall. 
And she finds herself thirsty for the presence of God. Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst. You know, thirsting for the presence of God is something that should happen in us every single day of our lives. This is the way God has made us. Drinking of him, just like taking a cup of water and drinking this each day. It's something that is innately in our nature that we should be doing every day. And over these next couple of months, we're looking at our vision, our mission, our values as a church. And one of our highest mission statements is embracing God's presence. Embracing the deep of our hearts that cry out for the deep of his as we worship him extravagantly in spirit and truth. And the clue for us is in those two words, embracing and presence. We have a thing in our family that when one of the girls leaves to go on a trip or to university or whatever it is, uh, we hug them for every day they're away. I have to say it's more my thing than theirs, but they go along with it. And it seems to be getting harder and harder as one of them now lives in the UK and is married and the other has just got a job and sooner or later she's going to be off all over the world. Who knows? But the way it works is something like this. And unfortunately, she's not here. She's relieved she's not here. And she said, Dad, I'm not going to stand up and be a demonstration. So you're just going to imagine. So kind of like I give them a hug for Monday, I give them a hug for Tuesday, Wednesday, and however long they're away, you know, I hug them and so on. But you know, for that to happen, it's no good me talking about it. It's, it's no good me kind of having that mental thought in my mind of what this embrace will look like. There has to be a practical application. There has to be an embrace. An embrace is taking someone into your arms and drawing them close and hugging them. And it's the same with God's presence. It's no good talking about it. It's no good thinking about it. It's no good it being some sort of theological idea that we refer to from time to time. We actually have to embrace his presence. Take him close as he takes us close in his arms and hug. That's embracing. But then we have the word presence. And you see, it's not embracing God's past and it's not embracing God's future. It's embracing his presence. I want to explain what I mean by that. Because I think typically and traditionally, The church has nurtured a culture of embracing God's past. Please hear me. History is really important. Knowing his story that is written and recorded, that is spoken through his word, is essential. Knowing where we've come from as we take the baton from the previous generation and hold it and run with it to pass it on to the next generation is so important. Championing those who've gone before us and championing the faith as we live our faith together. And tradition has its value as well. Actually, I think above every part of tradition is understanding the battles that have been fought before us, safeguarding orthodoxy in both our faith, practice, theology, and so on, from heresies and ungodly practices 
is something that's so important in helping us battle for the heart and seeing people saved and one for Jesus. But too often when it comes to encountering God, the church has hugged onto the past and has not let go. And in some areas, we're still doing so. We had a saying in college. I don't, I don't know whether I should actually share this with you. It's like one of my secrets that now, now you know. But, um, um, and it, it was the, the tutors who gave us the saying as, as students. But if you want to change anything in church, move it an inch a month. <laughs> if you want to change a flower stand or a mother union banner, you know, just move it a little bit a month. <laughs> and like we know how hard it is to do anything in church, especially with buildings and the challenges that come with that. But you know, very often the physical obstructions, if you like, are manifestations of greater spiritual obstructions. We're embracing the past and hugging onto what has gone bef- like before us, behind us, actually prevents us from allowing the Holy Spirit to move now in our midst, from allowing the Holy Spirit to transform our worship now. And this affects every, um, if you like, worship style, you know, whether it's charismatic, whether it's Anglo-Catholic, it doesn't matter what the tradition or style is. You know, it's very easy to be those who hold on to what has gone before us, hold on to the past. But then there's embracing God's future. And I think this is probably less in terms of like, uh, how this is done. But I want to just briefly explain that as well because you know, it's important again that you know, we have the hope of heaven. We look forward with anticipation to our time in heaven. And the prophetic words that God gives us about what is to come is so important in helping us keep it on the, narrow, the straight and narrow, if you like, walking in faith and obedience, especially in times of adversity. The prophetic is so important. But there are those in the church, and maybe you've come across them, where there's a constant dissatisfaction with what we're doing. Or there's an imagining the grass is always greener over the other side of the hill. It's always better than what we're doing. And they never seem to be at peace with what God is doing here and now, which actually prevents them from getting involved in the here and now, engaging with what God is doing in the moment. And whilst it's true, Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever, past, present, future. We do not have the quality of omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence that he does. To us, a day is not like a thousand years. And actually, the calling on our lives is to live in the moment, here and now, As Jesus got his disciples to pray, Matthew 6, give us this day our daily bread. And you see, God's presence is present in both time and nature and character. And his invitation is for us to embrace his presence today. And then take hold of it and embrace it when tomorrow comes. And then take hold of it, embrace it when the next day comes, and the next day, and the next day. Keep hugging his presence every day we live. And what is his presence? His presence is his glory. His presence is his countenance. 
His presence is his holiness. You know, a bit like we looked at last week, Psalm 133. The anointing oil, I don't know what you sensed today, it's just like oil that runs from our head all the way over us to our toes. Or the dew of heaven that just covers us and refreshes us. His presence is his love wrapping around us. His presence is his touch reaching out. One touch of the king changes everything. Restoring and healing inside and out. His presence is his peace. You know those moments when his peace that passes understanding, it doesn't make sense. We're in the storm and his peace comes. And it flows within us. His presence is his grace pouring in when we know we just don't deserve it. And yet still his grace comes. His presence is his joy. Running deep and running over. Overflowing, changing the atmosphere around us. His presence is Emmanuel. God with us. And he's with us now. His presence is here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And just as Jesus went out of his way to drench this Samaritan woman with his presence, what we're told actually right at the beginning of the chapter is it said Jesus needed to go through Samaria. And a bit later on at the end, to do the Father's will. He didn't have to. Jewish people avoided Samaria. If they wanted to go to Galilee, they went east and up and round. Jesus needed because the Father's will for this lady who'd been abandoned by a community but not by the Father who loved her was to be drenched in his presence. And I can't have a picture of her running back to the town, you know, leaving her water bottle by the well. And that was precious to her. Running back, and she tells the men, come and see what this man has done. And I think as she ran, his presence was saturating and drenching her inside and out. That fountain of water springing up. I don't know like you, but I love seeing fountains. You know, wonderful different designs. But the thing that there's, there's living water, they're moving. That fountain of water just rising up and bubbling over. And just as he went out of his way for this lady, he does the same for you and me. So that we can drink of this water that never stops flowing. Are you drinking enough water? That's what Santa says to me nearly every day. Dad, are you drinking enough water? Well, let me say this to each one of us, to you. Are you drinking enough water? Are you drinking enough water of life? The Holy Spirit's presence. You know, without his presence, we dehydrate. You know that, don't you? And it doesn't look pretty. (laughs) We have to keep drinking. Or else we dry up. The wilderness sets in. And our lives are barren. 
Jesus says in John 7, and he's doing this in the temple. And in one sense, there's a prophetic word that talks, I think it's Psalm 40, about there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And underneath the city of David in Zion, uh, there is water that flows. And it flows out of the city. And Jesus stands up in that place with these massive candelabras uh, with light burning out. And he's standing up in that place and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. See, the invitation is for us to drink of his presence, to drink and to keep drinking. And as we drink of his presence, the overflow of all that he pours into us touches those around us. And they get thirsty too. And there's only one person they find, the thirst-quenching water of life. And that is Jesus. Jesus.